if any parents have children ages four to seven, you can dismiss them to stepping stones. In my daily Bible reading, I recently finished the book of Genesis and started the book of Exodus. The book of Genesis ends with Jacob's family, and we're told that's about 70 people moving to Egypt because of a famine, and Joseph, Jacob's son, being the number two ruler in the land, protecting them, providing for them. The book of Exodus begins with Jacob's family growing into the nation of Israel, And the Egyptians, in their fear of this growing group of people inside their country, making the Israelites slaves. God chooses Moses to be his spokesman. And if you read the account, Moses very, very reluctantly agrees. Moses argues with God, oh, please find somebody else to do this thing. God won't relent, and so Moses finally agrees. When Moses first shows up, To speak to the leaders of Israel, they were very happy to hear that God was going to free them from their slavery. But when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, he asked him, Pharaoh, would would you allow the people of Israel to go to the wilderness to worship their God? Pharaoh said, no. Now, two notes here. God had told Moses before all this began, this is what's going to happen. Pharaoh is not going to cooperate with you. And that question, or that that request, let my people go to the wilderness to worship me, was something that Moses repeated over and over again, and every time until the last one, Pharaoh said no. Well, Pharaoh didn't just say no. That wasn't the only thing he said. To paraphrase him, he said, you slaves must have too much time on your hands. So here's what's going to happen. We've been having you make bricks out of out of clay, and you have to have straw to make the bricks, well, we are not going to change how many bricks you have to make. You have to make as many bricks as you have had to up to now, but now without us providing you the straw, you have to go find your own straw. Well, the Israelites were not happy at all, and Moses, in response to this setback, basically asked God, God, what are you doing? Now, let me just pause here and say this. There are some people that say that this account about the people of Israel was a myth that somebody wrote, just like people say that the New Testament accounts about Jesus and the disciples were myths. If people were to write this as a myth, they would not write it this way. This is too messy. The people are too fickle. They give up so too easily. It's just too much of a mess. This is real. Well, God speaks back to Moses and says, I want you to speak to the people in my name and tell them these things. First, tell them, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he uses those three names together, it's like this huge arrow pointing back to Abraham and the covenant relationship that God made with Abraham. And God told him, it's not just between God and Abraham. It's between God and all of Abraham's descendants, this nation that's now living in the land of Egypt. And then he makes some promises. He says, I will free you from your slavery. You will be my people and I will be your God. Another pointer to that covenant relationship. And then he says, I will take you to the land that I promised Abraham. I'll do this. 
And so Moses told all of these things to the people. But if you read <clears throat> the account, the people did not listen to Moses. And here's why. They didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit. They had lost hope. Now, you might be wondering, since this is the final sermon on a series in Malachi, why I started with Exodus. Because it's such a great story of lost hope and account. And what we're going to see as we talk today about hope in dark times is that in, in Malachi, the people had also lost hope. In fact, every week in this series... As we looked at Malachi, we've seen indicators that the people of Judah had also lost hope. And here's why I believe that the times that they lived in seemed so dark to them. They were looking at only their circumstances. They weren't thinking about God. And they were looking at their circumstances through a lens of their desires. So here's the situation if you put up the slide. First, they're a vassal state to Persia, which means they are not free. They are not an independent country. They're under the rule of Persia. But look at that second one. They had just a fraction of the people in the land from what they had before the exile. Now, before I was a pastor, I was an engineer. I'm so that means I'm still an engineer. And I like numbers and I like to sort things out. And I was thinking... How many people? We know the numbers. We know that it was less than 50,000 people returned to Judah when they had the opportunity after the exile. But how many stayed? Well, we don't know the exact numbers, but I did some estimates, and I'm thinking at best it was less than 5%. That means 95% of the people that could have returned to Judah did not. And so if you were one of those 5% that did go, or less, could have been 4 or 3 or even 2%, probably feeling a little bit small because you know that the rest of your extended family is not here. And then all those who returned were trying to restart their homes and their businesses and, their, and, and farms after a 70-year interruption, so they had to rebuild from rubble which means if you're going to build a house, you had to clear all the rubble out of the way, use what you could from it, and you had to clear the land that's been overgrown for 70 years. And then they're a nation, and they've been told their history, the glory of the nation in King David's day, and that's when it was at its peak. That's when they had the most land. That's when anybody who dared come against Israel lost. All of them, anybody who went against them lost. Those glory days were a very distant memory. And life was hard. But let me add one more piece that makes it, I think, in their minds even harder. All of this was going on for the people who were told that they were God's chosen people. So imagine you're one of them. I'm one of God's chosen people, and I'm paying taxes to Persia. I'm one of God's chosen people, but only a handful, the rest of the chosen, are somewhere else. I'm one of God's chosen, and I'm having to clear all this land and rebuild the house and do all of this stuff. Life is hard. 
Is this what it's supposed to be like? You can see they had pretty dark time where they were. Now, here's another thing that we've seen all the way through, and that's, is, that's that the people had ignored their own failures and, and focused instead on what they wanted, their expectations and their desires. And instead of accomplishing their expectations and enjoying the fulfillment of their desires, life was a struggle. And we see two signs of their lost hope in our verses for today. So remain seated. Let's read together from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 13. Let's read this together. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. The book of Malachi opens with that question, how have you loved us? I mean, can you see in the question the discouragement and the disappointment? The people are basically saying to God, I don't see the love. I don't see it. Reality seemed so different from their dreams and their desires. And then in verse 13, the people see life with God as a miserable life. It's a weariness. Now, as I mentioned last week, when you and I are gripped by deep disappointment, it's easy to look at everything with a dark perspective. And I think you can see that here. But because they were seeing everything, I believe, with such a dark perspective, they, people did not see God's love and patience and mercy and kindness. So let's look at that for just a minute. God had provided for the people to return to the promised land. Do we have the slide up? Yep, we do. Okay, that's almost unheard of. An entire nation is taken and forcibly removed from their land, relocated, and 70 years later, they're allowed to return. God had provided for the people to rebuild the temple. God had provided for the people to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. God had provided Ezra to teach the people God's word. God had provided Nehemiah as governor to lead the people, not just in rebuilding the walls, but in being the governor and leading the people for a time. God had sent the prophet Malachi to speak to the people, to call the, to call the people back to a right relationship with God. You see, God taking the initiative here with them. All of this was God's love and patience and mercy and kindness. But there's not only that. God also gave glimpses of hope in the book of, of Malachi. And in particular, I'm going to look at some verses from chapter 3. In Malachi 3, verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, that sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? Because I don't change, you're not dead yet. Well, it's a good thing God doesn't change. And what he's saying is you're not punished yet. The people are not punished by God yet. And what we've seen every week in the series is that the people have turned away from God and they deserve to be punished. But he hasn't done it yet. So, and, and the other part is God is just. He tells them he's just. 
And justice means if justice is going to be served, that the punishment that is due is going to be given at some point. But God is also patient. You and I should be careful that we don't presume on God's patience. And so in this verse, God speaks to his people of his patience and his mercy. And then in verse 7, God says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God's calling his people back to a right relationship with him. And notice again, God is taking the initiative. And look at what God promises. He says that he will return to his people. That's a way of saying that he's going to restore the relationship. They had walked away from God. He says, come on back and I will restore this relationship that we have. And what this shows us is that the God of the Bible is not a reluctant God, a God that has to be coerced to be kind and to be patient. And then chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. But bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So notice how he begins verse 10. Bring the full tithe in. He says, bring the full tithe in. That means they've been giving just part of the tithe. And just as a reminder, to tithe is to give back to God one-tenth of all that God gives us. And God never revoked that command. And so the people's lack of tithing, the fact that they're not giving the full tithe, was an indicator of their broken relationship with God. And then, of course, if you look at the book, you find all kinds of other indicators of their broken relationship that they're not giving the right kind of offerings and their heart isn't there and so God says put God to the test give the obey God give the tithe and see how God will do good to them and he says two things in particular he says God will provide so that there's no more need and God will rebuke the devourer now we saw early in the series that one of God's purposes in his Old Testament curses, and this is one of them, and in this case what the curse means, it is a negative consequence that God gives for turning away from him. One of the purposes for those negative consequences was to motivate the people to return to God and to obey his laws. And remember, his laws are the ways of life. And so God had brought these difficult circumstances on the people of Judah Because in their hearts, they had turned away from God. And one of the outward signs that their hearts had turned away was that they were not fully tithing. And so God says, here's what's going on. But in these verses, God also offers the people a path to blessing and to delight. Now, with that background, let's take a few minutes and just talk about hope. All of us were made by God to hope. And we all put our hope in someone or something. And actually, we put our hope in more than one something or someone at a time. Now, what is it that we want when we place our hope? 
We're wanting to satisfy our desires. We're looking for meaning and purpose, maybe peace and comfort, maybe help through difficulties and other things as well. We're looking for these things. So here's this next part is important. I don't think I put it in the sermon notes, so I'm going to do what the teacher does, stomp the foot, make sure you get this and say it twice. We hope because our current situation is not what we want it to be. We're hoping for something better, right? We hope because our current situation is not what we want it to be. Now, we naturally put our hope in money and in success and in family and relationships, in politics and in many other things. And this is okay to an extent. But let's think for a minute about the difficulty of hope in a world that is broken by sin. Money can be made, but it also can be lost. And sometimes it can be lost very quickly. Some years ago, I was talking with a man who was of retirement age, and we were talking, and he, I asked him why he hadn't retired yet. He said, well, you know that tech bubble thing we had? I said, I had a friend that I trusted that encouraged me to invest my retirement money in the tech bubble. And I did, and it was still there when the bubble burst. So I'm now rebuilding my retirement. So I've got a few more years yet to work. So we can lose money. The success that we desire can elude us. Family and friends will fail us at some point. They will disappoint us. It's not an if, it's a when, and it's because we're human. Often it's unintentional, sometimes, a few times intentional, but often unintentional. But still, there can be failures and disappointments, which means that institutions, things like schools and churches and businesses and governments, because they're made of people, are also going to fail us at some point. And then things break or wear out. I once heard a pastor tell about two men in his church. Both men were successful businessmen. Both were Christians. And both of them had lost their jobs through no fault of their own. They didn't lose their job because they were lazy or because they were bad workers. They were very good workers. Just conditions were there out of control of the company. They downsized. The men lost their jobs. One man just fell apart when he lost his job. He went into deep depression for months you see, his job had been his identity. It was his measure of success. It was a source of hope, and he lost it. The other man struggled to find a job. It took him a little bit, but he did find another job, and he went on with life. He had not made his job an ultimate source of hope. We see it turns out that no person or thing other than God First, can bear the weight of our expectations, or second, deliver the hope that we need. We put all kinds of hope in our jobs, in the new house, the new car, in relationships, all kinds of things. They cannot give us the full hope and joy and everything else that we desire out of it because it isn't made to do it. Only God can do that. Now, let me mention one other thing that's rarely discussed in our larger culture, and it's related to hope. Over the period of the last few hundred years, our Western culture has moved from being a religious, 
Christianized culture to a secular culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. And here's what this means. A couple hundred years ago, the default thought for anybody in our culture was everybody around us, we're going to be, we're going to be religious. And even if the person wasn't a Christian, they valued, at least to some degree, the Christian principles that, are, that were taught in the churches and, and lived out to some degree in the society. That was kind of the default. You're going to be religious, appreciate Christianity. We've now moved to the place where the default is, well, of course you're not religious. And if, if you want Christianity, that's fine. It's optional. But even more now, it's becoming Christianity is dangerous. And so the times are getting darker. Well, so Christianity has been replaced by humanism and evolution. And even though evolution is taught as fact in the schools, it is still an unproven theory, though not for lack of trying. There's been a lot, a lot of evolutionist, uh, evolutionary scientists that have wanted to prove that what Darwin proposed as an assumption is true. They just haven't been able to do it yet. So it's still unproven. So even though it's presented as fact, at the same time, you've got Christianity has been moved to the realm of values and, and uh, preferences. So it's optional. But here's something that only a few evolutionists have been willing to publicly share, and that's to share where evolution operating by blind chance, where it must lead us in regards to hope. But there is one who has been willing Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist, wrote a book, River Out of Eden. And in it, he writes this. Humans have always wondered about the meaning of life. Life has no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of DNA. And then he gets more specific. He says, life has no design. Life has no purpose. There is no evil and good. There is nothing but blind pitiless indifference. Let me say that last part again. And, and if you think about it logically, evolution is the idea that things are growing and improving, and, it, and the way it operates, according to the theory, is by, just by blind random chance. Just happened that stuff came together and you got a living cell. It just happened that the living cells developed and that we've grown to where we are today. Totally by chance. Where, if you follow that idea logically, where does it take you? This is where it takes you. That life has no design, and because there is no design, there is no purpose. If there's no purpose and no design, then there's no basis for calling one thing evil or good. And then there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. The cosmos doesn't care if you live or die. There is no hope in that view. Nowhere. There is no hope. But you've got many people that hold to evolution, they'll disagree with that. They disagree with that conclusion. Oh, no, there has to be hope. Why? Why do we say there has to be hope? Because God wired human beings for hope. He wired us for hope. Well, God calls us to put our ultimate hope in him. But God's hope isn't a situation. 
It's not an idea, and it's not a set of truths. God's hope for us is a person, and his name is Jesus. Here's the thing. In order to get the hope that Jesus gives, we have to give up control of our lives. I remember as a self-proclaimed Christian one day as an adult praying and saying, okay, God, I've tried to live my life in the church and in my work and everything else as a good person, but I've tried to live with me in control, and I've made a mess. Would you take control? I'm opening up my hand, giving over control. Now, did I try to grab it back? Yes, I've done that a bunch of times. But if you want the hope that Jesus gives, you've got to let go. Because you see, our Jesus is our ultimate hope only if we embrace him, not only as our rescuer, but as our king who directs us. If we only, if you and I only try to add Jesus to our lives to make our life better, who's still in control? I am. I'm saying, Jesus, here's, here's your list of your, your to-do list. This is what I want you to do. And if you do all these things, my life will be better. No. Doesn't work that way. Well, what does Jesus offer? And if you got the sermon notes, you'll see a list. It's a partial list. And even what I'm going to go through now is a partial list. There's more, but it's a really good list. It's a good starter list. So let's look at it. In Jesus, you and I obtain forgiveness. We all need forgiveness because we've disobeyed and distrusted God and we've offended other people. And so we need forgiveness. In Jesus, we obtain acceptance. And if you've ever heard God's good news, it seems like a paradox. It seems almost contradictory because on the one hand, God says, you are worse than you could ever imagine. More corrupted, more sinful, more selfish than, you're, than any of us would ever be willing to admit. But at the same time, God says that as his children, we are more loved by God than we could ever imagine we could be. Okay, the one kills the self-esteem movement. The first part, which are a lot worse than you think. The second part says, doesn't matter. God, God didn't choose us because we were good. He chose to love us because he wanted to. And so he can, he can put those things that seem contradictory, he can put them together. Just like that. Then in Jesus, we get unconditional love. God's love for his children is not conditional. He never says, God never says, I will love you if. In Jesus, we get understanding. Jesus, who is God the Son, became human, so he understands all of our struggles and all of our temptations. We get comfort. Now, God does not promise us only comfortable circumstances. Think about it. When do you want comfort? When things are uncomfortable, okay? When things are broken and when things are messed up, you want comfort. In Jesus, we get God's Spirit. We're never alone. God's Spirit is our counselor and our teacher and more. In Jesus, we get restoration. When God comes to us, he takes the initiative. When God begins a relationship with us, we experience a restored relationship with God. And we look forward to the ultimate restoration of a new heavens and a new earth where we also, everything about us is restored as well. 
we get a friend for eternity. We get mercy. You and I don't deserve any of the good that God gives us, yet God chooses to do good to us anyway. We get peace. Peace is like the comfort. We need peace when our situation is not peaceful. And he gives that to us. We find meaning and purpose. As human beings, we are not the product of blind chance. We are created by God to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with other people. And then in Jesus, we obtain help. As human beings, we all need help. That's a nice little ringtone. It can remind you when you hear something like that, think, I need help. Well, God works in us, and God helps us not to achieve our plans, though sometimes he does give us some of our plans. But what he's really doing is he's working to make us like Jesus and to use us in his kingdom. Remember, he's the king. In Jesus, we find rest and joy and rescue, and that rescue isn't just from all the bad stuff and the sin out there. It's also from the sin and the bad stuff in here. And we find wisdom and strength. And he promises eternity in heaven where sin and death and sorrow and pain will be no more. And that's the starter list of what we get with Jesus. And this hope is found only in Jesus. And it isn't a hope that we need just in the future. This is a hope that you and I need every day. Because we're broken and we're in a broken world. We're sinful and selfish and we're surrounded by other people and we've got a whole bunch of stuff that just doesn't work the way it ought to. And God says, it's in that. This is part of God's plan to, put us, to have us here in this mess. And he says, it's here in the mess and here as things seem to be so dark that you can shine. That you can show that you and I can live by hope. That we can trust that God is good because he is good and watch him work and we can give him thanks. And this is a hope that is worth sharing with others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of hope and you're the one hope that does not ever fail. We thank you for taking the initiative and coming to us Thank you for taking the initiative and sending Jesus. And Lord, you've given us this message of hope. And frankly, there are times where we struggle, where to us life seems kind of dark, maybe very dark. But you're there. And you're the one speaking. You're the one calling. You're the one urging us to listen, to follow you, to turn to you, to turn back to you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see this hope and now to live in this hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. Please stand. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up. The sun comes up.
It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me. Let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul. I worship Your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship Your holy name. And on that day, and on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship Your holy name. Sing that last line. Lord, I'll worship Your holy name. Please be seated. We have just a few announcements before we have our benediction. First, let me say thank you to those who came and helped last night with the community movie night. I appreciate your, all of your help. Next Sunday, November 28th at 3 p.m., we are offering, uh, we're having communion at the Bossoms. Uh, Ron Bossom, former pastor, is because of his health, not able to get out of the house much. And so we're having communion there. We have an open invitation for anyone who would like to join to come. And so please, if you haven't come yet and had that time with them, consider that. Though, though it is an open invitation, we have limited number of spaces uh, because it is in their house. And so if you're interested in going, please contact the church office or see Pastor Dan for that. We have Sunday school today at 1130, uh, both for adults and for children. So the adults meet in here and the children are in classes down the hall. You're welcome to stay for that. This afternoon, we're offering LifeQuest, I believe still at this point. And then finally, immediately after the service, so right after the benediction, if you can help with this, you gather in the back and uh, Greg Smith will be, and the Washashecks will be helping to direct. Next Sunday, we're having the greening of the harvester. We're decorating for Christmas. 
But we're going to get the boxes down right after the service today out of the attic. So if you're able to help, it'll take maybe 10, 15 minutes at the most um, to get all the boxes out and to get them uh, stuck away in the room. So if you're able to help, please come back to, in the back of the sanctuary and Greg and the, and the washer checks will direct you as to what needs to be done. Please stand for the benediction.